All right, well, you all can be seated. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And while you're turning there, just have a few introductory comments before we read this passage. This morning I want to talk to you about money. And sometimes we shy away from topics like this because they can be uncomfortable or because they may seem too practical and not spiritual enough. But I was thinking about this, that really the criteria for us should not be whether something is practical versus spiritual, but rather the criteria should be, is it biblical? And the Bible has a lot to say about money, and we would be very out of balance if we were to ignore or pass over topics like this. Now, with a topic like money, um, we oftentimes get caught up in the details and miss the big picture. We want to know the specifics. You know, is it permissible to buy this? Is it permissible to have this? How much should I give and how often? Those are oftentimes the details that we want to focus in on. And all of those questions are legitimate questions and should be considered, but they are not the big focus of the Bible when dealing with money. There are some principles that come up repeatedly in Scripture about money that are foundational to understand before we start getting into the detailed discussions about how much and how often. And today I want to look at three of these overarching principles in Scripture related to money. And one thing that I'm going to bring out at the very end is that I think we'll also see that these principles apply to much more than just money. They apply to every area of our life as well. But let's go ahead and read this passage in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is the parable of the unrighteous steward. Now he was also saying to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. 
And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. I'm going to stop right there. Um, I do not intend to exposit this entire passage, um, but what I do want to do is look at some principles about money that are found here in this parable. And I'm just going to bring out three things this morning. And the first principle is that we should not love money. So not loving money. And that's found there in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Um, And then the very next verse brings out that these Pharisees who were lovers of money were scoffing at him. And that's who Jesus was directing this parable to, the lovers of money. Well, this idea or this warning of not loving money is repeated to us over and over again in the Bible. Here are some verses for uh, just to consider. First Timothy says this, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hebrews 13 says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Um, Skipping around here, uh, again in 1 Timothy, referring to elders, overseers, one of the qualifications, elders, overseers must be free from the love of money. So this is not just some obscure passage here in Luke that tells us we should Uh, be free from the love of money. It's repeated over and over again. Well, this brings up a question then. Is money evil? And some might think of money as a necessary evil. You know, it's something that we have to get our hands dirty with. It's a necessary evil, but as much as we can, we'd like to avoid it. But I don't think that's the right way of looking at it. It's like words and our tongue. Would we describe words as a necessary evil? They certainly, because of the fall, we certainly do stumble and fall many times in what we say. James talks about that. Um, But would we describe words as a necessary evil? It's actually something that is a gift to us from God. God has given us words. Without words, we wouldn't know anything about God. He's written his word to us in the Bible. And so we can be thankful for words. But... Because of the fall, we have to be careful with words, and so it is with money. Because of the fall, we have to be careful about our attitude towards money, but money in and of itself is not evil. The issue is the love of money, and that's what we see over and over again in Scripture, the love of money. Anything that competes with our love for God 
is an idol. And idolatry is certainly a root of all sorts of evil. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists some things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And then he adds this on in regards to covetousness, which is idolatry. You see that there, that connection, covetousness, love of money, that's an idol, that's idolatry. And for many people, money is an idol. Many people love money more than they love God. And one um, classic example of this is the rich young ruler. If you want to turn to that, it's in Matthew chapter 19. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read this whole account. You know the story. This rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks him, you know, what, what thing must I do to enter into heaven? And Jesus tells him, keep the commandments. And he says, which ones? And Jesus lists off several of them. And he says, all of these I have kept from my youth. Um, Let's begin reading. So this is Matthew chapter 19. Let's begin reading in verse 20. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? So in, in his mind, he's like, I've done it all. You know, is there anything else? And he's waiting for Jesus to say, you're fine. You're good. Everything's good. Uh, Go on your way. But Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So, obviously, this parable is not Uh, or I'm sorry, it's not a parable, but this account is not teaching us that rich people are excluded from the kingdom of heaven. But it is warning us that uh, it is very difficult for the rich to be saved. There is a particular danger that the rich person faces, and that is the love of money. We all struggle with the love of money, and no one is exempt from it. Even the most poor can still struggle with love for money. But um, where there is an abundance of wealth, there is going to be an increasing pull to love it more, to be enslaved to it more. And I thought about, uh, again, Jesus' parable there about the sower. The sower went out to sow the seed, and some fell on the, beside the road, some fell in the rocky soil, some fell among the thorns, and some fell in the good soil. But you know what it says about the, the seed that fell among the thorns? This is from Mark 4. It says, And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches 
and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So you see the connection there. The desire for riches chokes out the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now thinking about the, the rich young ruler, there is no conflict in being religious and loving money as long as my religion and money are going in the same direction. I can be a Christian and do as I please with my money and still go to church and give my tithe and everything is just fine. But when God and money go in different directions, then there's a problem. Then I have a decision to make. If I'm going to follow God, God may call me to give up what I love. The rich young ruler had his money and his religion and everything seemed to be going just fine. I mean, he came to Jesus like, I want to get into heaven. What is it that I need to do? And Jesus tells him, you know, keep the commandments. Everything's going fine. I'm, I'm good there. But then Jesus puts his finger on the one issue, the idol in this man's life. And that man's world collapsed at that moment. He had to choose between following Jesus or keeping all the comforts and enjoyments of his wealth. And like countless others, he chose to forsake Jesus and live for the pleasures of this life. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Well, back in Luke chapter 16, um, we looked at this, this verse, verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. This idea of a servant here may help us to understand it better if we were to use the word slave. No slave can serve two masters. And the reason I say that is oftentimes when we hear the word servant, we might kind of think of a hired servant. So like I've, I've hired this person to come work for me. He's going to work on Thursday afternoons. And then on Friday afternoons, he's going to go work for someone else. But that is not the idea here at all. It's the idea of a slave who is in the possession of his master. So if you are a slave and you're in the possession of a master, are you going to be able to serve that master and then also give your service to another? And the answer is no. You will either be devoted to one or you'll be devoted to the other. And whichever one you're devoted to, the other one is only going to get your leftover time and attention. And it's the same way with us. We will be either fully devoted to God with money only getting our leftover attention or we will be fully devoted to money with God only getting our leftover attention. It's one or the other. We will either be a slave to money or we will be master over our money. Our every decision will be motivated by money or our every decision will be motivated by love for God. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and wealth. That's clear from this passage. That's one of the primary things that I think the scripture wants us to understand in this idea of money. You cannot serve God and money. Well, what is the big principle? God will not be second place in your life. He demands total and supreme devotion. 
And to some, this may seem petty and self-centered to think that God would demand total and supreme devotion. It's almost, and I know this is going to sound heretical, but it's almost as if God is a jealous boyfriend who won't allow uh, his girlfriend to be friends with anyone else. That's sometimes the mindset that we can wrongly have about God. But that is not, obviously, not reality. That is not correct thinking. And I thought of a much more accurate analogy. Imagine you were stranded in the desert somewhere, dying of thirst, and someone came along and rescued you and brought you to an oasis where there was shade and there was water, where you could find life. And obviously, there's a sense of gratitude there for being rescued, but as you began to get comfortable there in the oasis, you began to begin thinking wrongly. And you begin thinking, you know, it wasn't so bad out there in the desert. I kind of enjoyed it out there in that intense heat. In fact, I kind of enjoy making sandcastles out there. And you begin making plans. I think I'm going to go back out there. But the rescuer comes to you and says, no, you're not thinking correctly. Don't go back out there. There's, you will die if you leave this place where there is rest, where there is water, you will die if you go back out there. Now the question is, is that petty and self-centered of the one who rescued you to be saying that to you? No, of course not. It's truth. It's truth for the person to say, if you leave this place, you will die. And that is exactly what God is saying to us. If you leave the fountain of living water, to go in search of something else, you will die. And the money is exactly that. It is something that will not satisfy. It's a broken cistern. To leave the fountain of water and to go serve a broken cistern, you will forever be thirsty. And that is what God is telling us here. You cannot love God and money. Well, that's the first big principle here in Scripture. You cannot love money. Well, the second principle that I want to bring out is that of stewardship. In Scripture, we are called to be stewards. Now, this is not a word that we use very often, steward or stewardship. Um, Another similar word is manager, and I think we're all a little more familiar with the idea of a manager because we still use it in our everyday life, and many of us who are employed probably have a manager over us or we are a manager over some others, so we're familiar with that. But let's think about what a manager does, and that will help us to understand this idea of stewardship. So, a manager is entrusted with a group of workers or with a particular task, and it is their responsibility to ensure that it is done properly. So they're given, you know, here are these five workers, and you need to oversee them and make sure that they're getting the work done. Or here is a project, and I'm going to make you manager of this project. You need to make sure that it is functioning properly. Um, that gives us an idea of what a manager does. Well, a steward is typically utilized 
by a wealthy individual who needs someone to manage or oversee some or all of their property or their goods. So a steward is brought in to manage, to oversee the property that belongs to um, the one who has hired them. And I thought a good example of this in scripture is Joseph. When he, um, remember, he was sold into slavery in Egypt and Potiphar buys him. Uh, and is becomes his slave. But while he's in Potiphar's house, it says that Potiphar made Joseph overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. So that right there, that is what stewardship is. Potiphar said, Joseph, I'm putting everything that I own in your charge. I'm not going to concern myself with it anymore. You take care of it all. Now, the question is, whose stuff was that? Is it now all of a sudden Joseph's stuff? The answer is no. It still belongs to Potiphar, but Potiphar puts Joseph in charge. So that's what stewardship is. And so I I thought it would be good just to consider this. What are some truths about a manager or a steward? And these are very obvious, but it's something that we need to be clear on. Number one, a steward is not the owner. Someone else has ownership. And actually in our passage here in Luke 12, I'm sorry, Luke uh, 16, we see this in verse 12. Um, Jesus says, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. See, that's what stewardship is. Something that belongs to somebody else. Well, the second point. Uh, A steward does have the responsibility to manage and oversee what has been entrusted to them. And that was clear from the example that I brought up about Joseph. But even in this passage, in the negative sense, we see it with this um, unrighteous steward. Um, It says that it was reported to the owner that the manager was squandering his possessions. In other words, he was being a poor steward of it. But he had the responsibility and he was just doing a really bad job of it. Number three, a steward has to give account to the owner or be evaluated on their management or stewardship. If you're in a place of work and you're managing, overseeing people, chances are you have someone who's evaluating you on your management of those people, maybe yearly, maybe more often. Um, But someone is watching you and watching your performance or rather the performance of the ones under you and grading you on that. That is clear, something that is done with with management or with a steward, which leads to the fourth one, the quality of the product being managed or the people being managed is a direct representation of the manager. And unfortunately, we've probably all experienced this at some time or another in a place of work. Things can be really messy in the workplace. I don't mean physically messy, but a lot of difficulties in the workplace. And it's oftentimes a result of poor management. There's someone who doesn't know what they're doing trying to manage something, and things get really out of hand. Well, what is that? That's, that's not good management. On the flip side, though, when you see that everything is working efficiently and everything's working as it should, you'd say the manager here is really knows what he's doing. They're, they're doing a good job. Well, look at verse 10 here in Luke 16. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous 
also in much. What do you think this little thing is here that is being referred to? And I think the context in this whole passage would be money. He who is faithful in this little thing called money is faithful also in much. And conversely, he who is unfaithful or unrighteous in a very little thing, money, is unrighteous also in much. How we use our money is a gauge for our hearts. If you are faithful in this small thing, you will be faithful in much more. That is clear from scripture. If you're faithful in the small things, you will be entrusted with more and will be faithful with that. Well, moving on then, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now this gets a little difficult when we read passages like this because it almost begins to sound like a works mentality. And I think we'll see clearly that it is not the case. But it's saying this, if you have not been faithful in money, God will not entrust true riches to you. And so that brings up the question then, does that mean that if you're not faithful with money, then you're not a Christian? And in short, I think the answer is yes. Our management of money is a fruit. And if a tree is producing bad fruit, what does that say about the tree? It's a bad tree. And conversely, if the tree is good, what kind of fruit might you expect to get from a good tree? And the answer is good fruit. But I do want to stress again, this is not work salvation. We are not saved by being careful with our money any more than we are saved by, for example, loving our neighbor. But it is a test, a gauge for where our heart really is at. If you say that you love God, then the fruit from your life should show it. You should be one who exhibits love to your neighbor. You should also be one who is marked by being faithful in this little thing called money. It is not work salvation. It is an evidence of reality in your life. And I was given a couple of commentaries, and one of these I found to be very helpful. This is from J.C. Ryle, and I thought I would just read this. Our Lord would have us know that little things are the best test of character and that unfaithfulness about little things is the symptom of a bad state of heart. He did not mean, of course, that honesty about money can justify our souls or put away sin, but he did mean that dishonesty about money is a sure sign of a heart not being right in the sight of God. The man who is not dealing honestly with the gold and silver of this world can never be one who has true riches in heaven. And then he quotes, If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you that which is your own? Let us never forget for a moment that true faith will always be known by its fruits. We may be very sure that where there is no honesty, there is no grace. 
And so again, it, the focus, when we say that feels like work salvation, the focus is in the wrong place there. Rather, we ought to be saying these are evidences of reality in the heart. The evidences of a true work of grace in the heart is that there begins to be a giving over. Instead of taking possession of things as though they belong to us, we begin to have the mentality of God, this is yours. I am just the steward of it. And that is what we're referring to in this idea of being faithful in a little thing. It's not talking about, well, so-and-so is a much better budgeter than I am, so maybe I'm not a Christian. That has nothing to do with it. What we're talking about is whether or not the love of money still has a grip on our heart or whether or not we have given it over to the Lord and said, Lord, I am just entrusted with this You've given this to me, and I want to use it faithfully. That is what this is really about. Now, the idea of God having ownership is easy to see in some situations and harder to see in others. So imagine, here's an example. Imagine you are in need of a car, but you didn't have money to purchase one. And some of us have probably been in that situation. But if someone came along and said, I felt led of the Lord to give you this gift, and it was enough money to go and purchase a vehicle, would you not see, and I think we all could agree with this, that it would be a gift from the Lord, and there would be a sense of, God, you've given this to me. I want to be a good steward of this vehicle that you've given. That that would be very easy to see. But let's change that around a little bit. Let's say that you were in need of a car, and you had money saved up in the bank for just such an occasion as this. So you go, you withdraw that money, you pay for that car, and you get to reap the rewards of your service. Well, how, where did that money come from? Well, it came from many hours of faithful service at your work, your place of work, toiling and sweating away and saving your money. So whose car is that? Is, is that not yours? You worked for it, you bought it, The title has your name on it. It it seems like that would be yours. It's harder in that situation to see how is it that this vehicle is a gift from God when I'm the one who's done all the work for it. Well, what about these questions? Who gave you life? Who gives you breath? Who keeps your heart beating every day? Who gave you the wisdom to be able to do your job? Who gave you your job? Who gives you the strength to complete the tasks that are needed to be done? Who saves you from accidents every day that you aren't even aware of? God. God is the one who's done all that for us. So even though we've got this money in the bank that came from our labors, do we not see how God was the one behind and underneath it all? And so, yes, you did work for that. And praise the Lord that you had the money to be able to buy that car. But ultimately, it's still God's. He has entrusted it to you. I thought of this verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What do we have that hasn't been given to us in some way? Everything that we have has been given to us by God. Our money, our time, our talents, our bodies, everything has been given to us by God. And we are entrusted with them. The question is, how are you doing in managing them? Are you a good steward with what God has given you? Now, there are different ways that we can be a poor steward of the money God has entrusted to us. 
You could be a selfish person and not give. That would be being a poor steward. You could use your money in ways that are not honoring to the Lord. You could be a poor manager of money and squander it and not really know where it is going. And that idea of squandering money, I can't help but think of the prodigal son there where it says that he went out and squandered his living, loose living, this idea of living it up, partying, you know, let's have fun. Well, where'd the money go? I don't really know. We just had a good time that night. Well, that's squandering. That's not being a good steward of what God has given to you. Well, how could we be a good steward with the money that God has entrusted to us? And the first and primary thing I think we need to realize is it doesn't belong to us. It is God's, and he has entrusted it to us. And the examples that I gave of being a poor steward would be solved by keeping this reality central in our lives. It all belongs to God, right? I mean, think about even that idea of squandering. This is probably a a dangerous question to ask, but I hope I know the answer to this. Even among the young people, if your father gave you $100 and said, go use this wisely, would you be tempted to just go blow it on video games for an afternoon at the arcade? I would hope not, because you would understand that's not being wise with the money that your father has entrusted to you, right? And so even in that sense of it doesn't belong to me would help in this idea of not squandering what God has given to us. We are merely stewards of it. It belongs to God. So how do we practically live in light of this reality? Well, we should always be asking the Lord, Lord, how would you have me to use this money that you have entrusted to me? We get a paycheck every however often you get your paycheck, and that ought to be one of the first things you think about when that money is given or received in your bank account. Lord, how would you have me to use this money? Secondly, we should seek to use money in ways that are honoring to the Lord. Again, these are, these are big principles. There's all kinds of questions that might offshoot from that. Well, is it honoring to the Lord to do this, that, or the other? It's honoring to the Lord to pay your rent. It's honoring to the Lord to pay your bills and to pay your taxes. It's honoring to the Lord to feed your family. These are things that are pleasing. In fact, it says, if man will not work, neither let him eat. So it's, it's right for us when we're working to, to provide for the needs of ourselves and those around us. But there ought to be that question, Lord, how can I honor you with this money? We should strive to be a good testimony with the use of our money. And this one is, is something to really think about. How, what is the testimony of the way in which I use my money? And most, most of us are not thumbing through each other's checkbooks and looking at where the money's going. But is your, is your way of life one that someone would say, that, that brother, that sister right there has a good testimony in the way they use your money? Now, here's, here's a question. It's, it may be uh, kind of a convicting question to think about. What does the waitress at the restaurant think? about your testimony in regards to money. And I think a lot of us, we kind of get in the mindset, at least for myself, sometimes you look at the menu price and I paid for the food. And then you forget as you get to get up that 
everyone else at that restaurant, that's a place where they tip. And here we are a professing Christian. Are we ones who get up and leave a few quarters on the table? Or are we one who we seek to have a good testimony in that? It's just a, a question to think about. Another thing, we should strive to manage our money well. That means knowing where it's going and having a good handle on it. And brethren, these are not things that come inherent to a Christian. I'm not saying that just because you're a Christian, all of a sudden you're a master budgeter. That's not it at all. But there ought to be a sense in which things are not out of control in this area in your life. And if they are out of control, you ought to be looking at, is there some deeper issue And then secondly, you ought to be asking, brother or sister, I need help in this area. I I seem to not be able to keep track of my money very well. There are plenty of uh, brethren here that can help in that regard. But this idea of stewardship, this is primary, one of the primary things that we see in Scripture in regards to money. And then the third one, generosity. This is something that comes up again and again in Scripture in regards to money, generosity. And the the definition that I found for generous, liberal in giving or sharing, unselfish. It's like there there it is right there, unselfish. And we'll see that here in just a minute. That's one of the the key obstacles to, uh, to giving and to being generous. Well, in this passage here in Luke 16, we have this verse in uh, verse 9. It says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Well, this is another one of those kind of hard verses to understand what exactly it's referring to. Make friends for yourselves by the means of, and I think we could translate wealth of unrighteousness just to be money. Make friends for yourself with money so that when it fails, when what fails, when the money fails, and it doesn't just mean that when you go broke, but there's this sense of when the, when the money is no longer going to be any benefit to you, when you die. In other words, you're not taking any of it with you. Make friends for yourself in this life with money so that when it fails, they will receive you into heaven, is I think what the, the general... Uh, meaning of that verse is. And again, a helpful commentary that I read on this. Salvation by works is not being taught. The loving help given to others in this life is a sign of genuine discipleship and salvation already enjoyed rather than a meritorious ground of salvation. So generosity is just a sign of what God has done, not a merit or a work that we do to get salvation. It is, a, it is a fruit of what God has done for us. Well, why is generosity such a big deal? Why does it matter? Well, the first thing that I thought of is that what is the one thing that the Christian battles every day and has to daily put to death? For me... Itself, And I think probably for every one of us, we would agree with that. Self is the one thing that we daily have to put to death. And one of the ways we can put self to death is through giving. Self would have us hoard and keep the bounty for ourselves and for our own interest. But through giving, we are being the master over self. 
But self is a very difficult enemy. Self is willing to sacrifice a little if it can retain the majority. And that is where generosity deals a death blow to self. I can give just a little bit and soothe my conscience in that way, but self in many, many times is still on the throne. But when I say, no, I am going to give in a sense until it hurts, that's where self is getting cut down. And again, I'm not just referring in this instance to just money, but in all areas of our life, giving of ourselves so that self is no longer on the throne. I thought of this, uh, this example of, Uh, walking one mile you know that's required of you to walk one mile but at the end of it what is the generous thing what is the thing that will kill self can I walk a second mile with you that is that's the heart of generosity to say I know this is required of me but I want to go above and beyond that and generous giving is a way to defeat selfishness in the Christian life But second, and even more importantly, we have the example of generous giving in Christ himself. And um, this is, I think, the primary reason why generosity is such an important thing in the Christian life. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What is that saying? It's saying that here Christ, who had everything, empties himself for whose benefit? For our benefit. He empties himself so that we might partake in the spiritual blessings. That, that's generosity right there, giving of himself. And then here's another one, a very familiar verse, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave. Okay, well, what did he give? A little gift? A small token of his affection? No, he gave his only begotten son. That's generous. Your only begotten son. That is a generous gift, what God has given to us. Now listen to some of the words that are used to describe what God has given to us given to us or what God is like. And I, I began, and this is just a small sampling, but listen to some of these phrases from Scripture. Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. Uh, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Ephesians 2, verse 7, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, and God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. And then in Exodus 34, when Moses, uh, the Lord is passing in front of Moses, says, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Then in Mark 14, he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And I was thinking of that idea of poured out. Not sprinkled, not dropped, but poured out. And then the last one, Romans 5, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. 
So do you see a pattern? There is not a stinginess with God towards us. He pours out. He abounds. He lavishes. And as children of God, this is how we should be. We should be ones who are marked by generosity. We have received much. Therefore, we should give much. And that's what it says in Luke 12. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. It ought to be the overflow of our hearts. I have been given so much. I have a desire then to give to others. So what does generosity look like practically in regards to our money? Many here are raising families and finances are tight. And there may be a desire to give, but not much ability to give. So what does generosity look like for some of us here? Um, And I would include in that, you may be going to school, and you don't even have an income right now. So what does that look like? And the first thing I would say is give to the ability that you are able to give. Give what you have, not what you don't have. And Mason brought that uh, verse up. She did what she could. That's perfect. What can you do? That's all that the Lord is asking of you. The second thing, are there things in your life that you can control that are hindering you from being more generous? There's a lot of things in our life that we can't control. We can't control property tax values in Kirksville. We can't, <laughs> we can't control necessarily what our income is going to be. I mean, you may be able to work more hours, but probably your boss didn't say, how much do you want to make this week? You know, that's kind of fixed. That's set. So you can't control that. But are there areas in your life where you can control? Is there some expenses like, you know what, that's not needed. I can do without that. Are there things in your life that you can control that are hindering you from being more generous? Third, plan for how you will give and how you will be generous. It is much more likely to happen if you plan for it, right? If you don't plan for it, by the end of the month, it's probably not going to happen. But if there's a thought at the beginning, here's what I plan to do. I'm going to set this aside and I'm going to give it in this way. Then there's more likelihood that it will happen. Fourth, be ready and open to the unexpected opportunities to be generous. If you're like me, I tend to be the planner, but then I'm a strict and rigid planner, and it's hard to think about breaking away from that plan. Maybe the Lord brings something across your path that you didn't plan for. Is there an opportunity to be generous in that way? Well, these are three areas that I feel like that are foundational or overarching themes in regards to money. And again, like I said, there's, a, there's all kinds of questions that we could come up with. Well, how does this apply? How does that apply? But if you think about this, don't love money. Be a good steward with what you have. It belongs to God after all. And seek to be generous with it. Many times that answers the questions, the detailed questions that we may have. But in closing, I wanted to bring out one final point of application to all this. These principles of money that we've talked about today have application to every area of our life, not just money. God did not give us one set of principles regarding our finances and then a separate set of principles regarding the rest of our life. It's one set of principles for every aspect of our life. And think with me. What did we say about the love of money? It's idolatry, right? 
We should not tolerate idols in our life of any kind. It may be money. It may be love of respect. It may be something totally different. What is there any idol in your life, money or otherwise? Don't tolerate it. Um, John Barry read this verse to us in the first uh, message. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right there, the love of the world, that encompasses every idol that one could possibly have. The love of the world. Don't do that. Don't tolerate that. Idols will destroy your soul. So just like we should not love money, we ought to have this principle over our whole life. I'm not going to love anything that competes with my love for God. What about stewardship? Does it only apply to our money? You know, is, is money the only thing that God has entrusted to us? And obviously the answer is no. What about our time? What about our talents? What about our giftings? Do we recognize that God is the owner of all these and we are entrusted with them as well? We will give an account before the Lord for every aspect of our life. You may be the one who is very good and very structured in your finances, but how are you doing in other areas of your life as well? Are we a good steward with what everything that God has entrusted to us? And then the third, what about generosity? And clearly this one does apply to money, but what about other areas in our life? Do we give of our time in a stingy manner, or is there a generosity in the use of our time? Do we give of our stuff, again, in kind of a stingy manner, or is there an overflowing generosity? I've been given this tool or whatever, and it's been a blessing to me. Here, use this. It'll make your job a lot easier. Is there a generosity in that sense? Do we give of our talents? Think of it. What has the Lord given to you that could be a blessing to others? Do you keep that to yourself? Or is there a sense in which, Lord, you've given this to me. I want to serve others with it. Do we have a generous spirit towards others? And so when we think about this idea of the principles of money, I hope that we come away with it thinking that this has so much more application in my life. It touches every area of my life. Lord, help me to be one who does not love anything more than you. Help me to be one who regards everything that I have as being entrusted to me by you. And third, Lord, help me to have the same generous attitude towards others that you have shown towards me. Read the Bible. You'll see in the dealings of Jesus to us, toward us, it's generosity. It's pouring of himself out. Not calculating, well, this is going to cost me so much. No, it's the idea of pouring himself out. So may the Lord help us in these areas.